as someone who has a tendency to seek harmony and consensus and the middle ground, I learned that that's not always possible and doesn't always give everybody an opportunity to say their bit and isn't always fruitful. I just had to park that as best I could, realize that it's not a popularity contest and go forward. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. Well, Martin, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show, mate. Thanks so much, Martin. I've been looking forward to it for weeks. Yeah, awesome. As I always do at the beginning of the podcast is to ask the question, which is how did you end up joining the service and in your case, the Royal Australian Navy? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a son of a son of a Navy man. So it seemed pretty logical to me as someone who felt like he'd grown up in the Navy. From my earliest days, it seemed like I was in a naval family. The, the Martin family friends were Navy. Everything was Navy. And so I figured I would follow along and, and be a part of that. 41 years, his father joined at the age of 13 also and was killed in World War II. So it, it seemed a natural thing for me. Now, of course, around the age of 16, 17, 18, I, I became more independent and thought, no, what am I doing? I need to do something else and mark my way in the world. But uh, then I did some interviews and officer selection boards and the like, and I found that the Navy was a very, very compelling choice. So, you know, I went before I knew it. I was not jackarooing on a farm in the Western Plains. I was uh, rolling up to the Naval College with uh, 26 others in, in a smallish course and uh, making new friends. Yeah, I didn't actually know there was an alternative career path on the land, <laughs> but it makes sense. It makes sense. So, you know, who were those leadership influences in early in your life and either before the Navy or early in your military career? Yeah, the short answer is mum and dad, I think, were the leadership influences. I think many would say, would expect that I would say my father, but in fact, it was watching them as a pair that was very right. influential to me. I, th I think they were a pair who were very aligned. There was a lack of ego in the way they went about their life's work as a pair. I mean, dad was a serving member, mum was a stay-at-home mum, but there was something they did together and the, the way they interacted and built relationships and the depth of relationships. And as that progressed and they went from being a captain and his wife to being a commodore and his wife and then an admiral and his wife and then eventually the governor of New South Wales and his wife, I got to see that they had this bias towards service to others and they would talk quite openly about that. And the thing that really inspired them and motivated them as the governor and the governor's wife was to serve others who volunteered and helped the community. So they wanted to help others that helped normal people. And it was that sort of service mentality. There was no ego in it. It was very selfless. Uh, it was very humble. And there was no grandstanding and the like. There was no um, jumping up and down. And I, I respected that. I think that's a good model for leadership these days. Mm. Your own naval career was focused on becoming a warfare officer and a navigator, command of your own ship and uh, command of HMAS Watson, our warfare trade establishment. Tell us a little bit about your career and what were some of those highlights? Yeah, well, it was 34 years. I departed as a captain. Along the way, yes, I was a subspecialist surface ship navigator, which I loved. I had a certain aptitude for that. 
there were lots of options. As a warfare specialist, I could become a communicator or gunnery officer or an anti-submarine warfare officer, but I found navigation was my thing. I had a, a quite a natural affinity with being on the bridge, ship handling, advising the command on all things to do with navigation and ship handling was my thing. And it seemed to come naturally. And the more courses I did in that specialization, the better I became and the more confident I became to the point where, and I think this is a tipping point, where along the way you're thinking, oh, I can never be captain of a ship. That's for others to do. And these others, people you look up to and they're champions and you just think, wow, that could never be me. But the further I got into navigation and then I got to practice command in a patrol boat for 18 months, it was real command, but it wasn't big ship command. It, it was the real thing. But I think that was a fantastic learning platform for me. And this was at a stage of career you know well where you're not really offered an alternative, but many go off to be second in command of a big ship or to be captain of a little one. And I, I took the captain of a little one as a, a great way to learn about myself and my leadership style and my flaws. And that then turned into promotion and captain of a big ship and that turned into promotion and captain of a shore establishment with many staff jobs along the way. Lillian, thinking back to that time in that patrol boat where you learned a lot about yourself, can you, what were some of those lessons? What was that moment where you go, actually, the butt stocks with me uh, here, right? Yeah. Yeah. The first thing was an epiphany. I don't know what caused the epiphany, but it was, it caused me to put a little note on my shaving mirror that I would see every morning, which was, this is not a popularity contest. Yeah. And, and I can't remember the backstory to that, but I know it was important for me to realize that this was bigger than me being liked and being popular. And there are tough days, of course. Um, the weather is a tough thing. The mission is a tough thing. And the people are not always getting on harmoniously and sometimes there's conflict and that's a tough thing to manage. As someone who has a tendency to seek harmony and consensus and the middle ground, I learned that that's not always possible and doesn't always give everybody an opportunity to say their bit and isn't always fruitful. So I, I just had to park that as best I could, realize that it's not a popularity contest and go forward. And there was another thing I learned as well. I've learned this retrospectively and I've turned some stories from that time into the lesson around this, which is that leaders have an option. If, if you think about leadership as a spoken hub model, you can have the leader in the middle and all the team members around the outside of the wheel. And I learned that the leader shouldn't be in the hub of the wheel. They should put the mission in the hub and just be another one of the team members around the, the outside of the spokes. And I learned that the hard way with some self-realization that the more I got involved in trying to guide and direct when things were tough, the less people were focused on the mission. But when I put the mission in the middle and everyone just got on with it and I stood back, things strangely took care of themselves and I just had to give a little bit of left and right and left and right and let them get on with it. And that was a really good lesson for later when I was captain of a big ship. Yeah. I really appreciate that concept that take the sort of leader out of the top. It's almost like the wiring diagram, isn't it? It's like it's not the sort of the leader of the organization that should be at the top of that. It's actually the mission. I yeah. often think you need to flip the organizational chart on its side and lead with the mission and everybody else is like followed behind that. So, Yeah, perfect. That's, yeah. that's it. And if they are well-trained, individually and collectively, and they know exactly what the mission is. So there's extraordinary clarity on what they're doing every hour, every day, every week. Even if the ship's not at sea, if there's great clarity on what the job is and not what the mission is, they will get on with it. 
Yeah. We might come back and talk a little bit more about that with the work you're doing now in your consultancy. Was there a moment in your big ship there where you sort of, that was, you were reminded of that lesson? My experience is that sometimes you need to relearn those lessons a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's right. You do. And they reappear when you least expect them. For me, that sort of lesson reappeared when I, I thought I was doing it beautifully. And so warships, as you're well aware, they go through a cycle of readiness. And I joined a warship when it was just entering six months of rebuild. So rebuilding the ship, rebuilding the generators, but also rebuilding the team. It had just returned from Gulf War II. So that went for about six months. And then we go to sea for six months and work ourselves up as individuals and teams, collectively, individually, to then become a unit that can be deployed operationally again. And then we got to the third six-month block, which was to be deployed to the Middle East. Now, it takes about three weeks to get to the Middle East. And en route, I hid away in my cabin intentionally and said to the team, now, you you run it. You get on with it. Now, I thought I was putting the mission in the middle of the hub and spokes. And so I sat in my cabin and I watched box set after box set of Seinfeld and the West Wing. I learned a lot about leadership from uh, Josiah Barrett, Jed Barrett or Bartlett. He was the greatest leader we never had, I think. Yeah. And then we got to the Middle East and first day on operations there when it's a foreign environment, you know that the team's very well prepared, but I was quite daunted. I was actually physically and emotionally daunted by the environment we come into. Lots of warships, foreign warships, very big oil installations through which Iraq was exporting all of its oil. They had big gas plants that were always lit, so there's burning off of gas all the time. It was just strange and odd. And I made a note in my journal that it was weird and actually it was a bit of a letdown. But there it was. I was a bit daunted by it. So I hid away in the cabin again for the about the first 24 hours, clearly not the whole time, but a good chunk of it. And sure enough, the very first night, the navigator came running down, smashed open the curtain, ran in, interrupted me eating my lamb chops and three veg and told me we had very nearly run aground on a wreck that we were very conscious of, was on the chart, was actually uh, on radar. And we'd come within, metaphorically, millimetres of running into this wreck. Now, had we, we'd probably still be there sitting upright in 14 metres of water. So the lesson there was that, yes, I thought I was doing the right thing by putting the mission and the team in the middle and stepping back. But by becoming withdrawn, professionally withdrawn, I had removed myself from the decision-making process from that third eye and that ability to look in that weird helicopter view that captains have where they see things that others don't. And to be a presence that people just bounce things off. And sure enough, because I wasn't there and everybody was probably as daunted as me, one thing led to another two-degree course correction for a a boat recovery and a five-degree course alteration for a helicopter recovery suddenly turns into 15 degrees and you're sitting nearly on top of a wreck. So that was a very stark warning. Yeah. Thankfully, it was day one of five months operationally deployed inside the area. It was a near miss. I'm a bit scarred by it. And it's something that had it gone wrong, it, it just would have been monumental and catastrophic for the Australian Defence Force and the government. Yeah. And many, many careers. Mm. What action did you take? I mean, that's sort of, that's that moment where it's like, it's in your face. Like, how did you react to that? Mm, what were the next yeah, actions fair, you took? Fair question. Well, in, in the immediate moment, it's about making sure we're safe, that that two-degree, two-degree, two-degree error is sorted, and we're back where we need to be. We've got the helicopter, got the boat. Everyone can take a deep breath. Then for me, it was 12 hours of reflection, thinking about, right, yeah, what do I do about this? And 
then on the second night, I got together all of the officers who are involved in the driving and fighting of the ship, so not the logisticians or the engineers or the weapons engineers or the aviators, like everybody else. And I got them together in a small space at the back of the operations room. I told them that this is the near miss that we've had and uh, had we run aground, it w- would be the most catastrophic and embarrassing thing that's happened since 1964 when we lost the destroyer in peacetime off the New South Wales coast uh-huh. with the loss of 84 lives. And then I looked at them all and said, so whose fault is it? And I gave them about six or seven seconds until they were really starting to squirm and until they were kind of starting to look and almost starting to point at the person who was actually in charge of the con at the time. And then I just said, no, this is my fault. And there was a collective sigh of relief, like, oh, thank God, he's not, he's not going to point anybody out. But then I pointed at them all one by one and said, and it's your fault. And it's your fault. And it's your fault. It's the fault of those that weren't even on the bridge. And in fact, on reflection, I shouldn't have just had the ship's drivers and operators there. This was the fault of three, correction, 248 people. And that really was the point. This was a collective calamity near miss. It takes everybody to get there. It takes everybody to fix it. And so having had that conversation with them, to make everybody completely certain that this was my fault and that I owned the train set, I then got the heads of department together, so the engineer and the weapons engineer and the aviator and the logistician and the second in command. And I said, I just want you guys to have a chat about what we can do about this, some some sort of mantra, just something that changes because I think you're all doing your head of department work magnificently, but it may just be that we're missing something collective here. And I can't remember exactly, and I can't remember if they told me exactly, but my memory of it was that what came back was we need to be thinking ship first, department second, and self third. That's what I took away from it anyway. And I think maybe before that it had been department first, ship second, self third. I'm I'm not sure. They were fantastic. These heads of department were brilliant and they were running their departments as well as anybody could. But I think for us to have that near miss and that near calamity just told me that we were missing something more collective, more ownership of responsibility. And as I've said, I, I think I then fed that a bit by only having a section of the officers together when I said, whose fault was this? And I could have gone broader because it is everybody's fault. And coming out of it, the fixing of it was everybody's thinking and solution. Yeah. Can I only for being able to share that because it's not always easy to share those stories when we realised that we had a part to play in that and thank God it was a near miss. And it's actually what you do next, isn't it? It's that choice you make in that moment and how you respond to those circumstances that really defines, you know, the outcomes for that ship or organization, right. or whatever it might be. Yeah. And there's that point where it goes a bit quiet and everyone's looking at you. And I think that that happens for captains of ships. This probably happens in the military more than in most places. I made a mine was in, in command of the Nottingham when it ran aground off Lord Howe Island in 2001. Oh. Another colleague of ours was the captain of the West Australia when they had a horrendous fire. And I know from both of those people that there was a moment for the captain of the West Australia. It was a moment when everyone's saying you should press the button that's going to extinguish the fire in the engine space, but it will kill anybody in there who is still alive. Um, For the captain of the Nottingham, it was the moment when he came in from the bridge wing watching his ship rocking and rolling as it sat on top of Wolf Rock with water flooding in, with everyone suddenly looking at him as if to say, what next, boss? What, what What the hell do we do here? And he said it was a frightening moment. 
frightening moment of exposure when you suddenly realise responsibility and authority is entirely on your shoulders. Yeah. And our colleague in West Australia would have felt that acutely. It strikes me that there's a leadership responsibility that actually is preparing the team, whatever circumstance it is, whether it's the military or corporate or even community organisation, that you're preparing people for the big thing, that big scenario, so that when that happens, there's an automatic response and people are not sort of looking for the next leadership direction or command. They're actually getting into action around that because they've prepared for that and it's you know, it's part of resilience, I guess. Yeah, like team resilience, organisational resilience. Yeah. Yeah, quite right. And that has to be uh, the good, bad and the otherwise. Mm. And I think in corporate Australia, they learned that in the very early days of COVID when that contingency business plan or whatever it was called that everybody had given lip service to for the previous 10 years was suddenly called upon. Business continuity plan was suddenly called upon and what the hell are we going to do now? And everyone went, oh my goodness, this is, I really haven't given this anything but lip service for 10 years and now we've got to implement it. Now that's exactly what you're talking about. As, as much as the good, like something fantastic's happened, let's go, is also the corporate metaphor or analogy for running aground and having a horrendous flood mm-hmm. and for corporate australia that that was COVID. yeah they have to be ready you have to be prepared have to have thought about contingencies and they have to know who's stepping into the leadership breach if the lead is absent either because they've been removed because of this calamity or because they've just become professionally absent as i did for half a day on operations in the middle east yeah it reminds me that it's a constant it's like you know, it's very easy to get wrapped up in the busyness of business, particularly if you're working in that environment of change, which is a constant. You know, we're seeing that in our economy right now. And so there's something in that for leaders, isn't there? It's like it's being ready for the big thing that will actually kill us completely, so to speak. Yeah, being ready. Yeah. That's about clarity of communications. It's about inspiration. Yeah. It's about communication. It's about listening, making sure people know what the plan is. Yeah. Now, the military, I think, is particularly good at it. There's always a plan. There are people well-trained to be ready for the what-if. And ships, particularly before going on operations, spend days doing damage control training, which is training against a missile that's come in and exploded, training against a flood or both, or an internal fire or loss of power or running aground whatever that is, part of being operationally ready is not just about the ability to shoot down an airplane and take on the enemy. It's about being ready and resilient to keep fighting when you take a few hits. Yeah. And that's that's entirely what you're suggesting. Yeah. It occurs to me that actually the military were pretty good at sort of considering risk on a, in a constant way. You know, we're mitigating against the, the attack or the enemy and what weapons they might bring against us, but we also manage that risk internally as well. And actually yeah. you're scenario there was very much about, hey, we had realized some risk here that uh, we hadn't got the checks and balance or mitigation in place for. What are your thoughts about what we should be doing as leaders in our corporate world right now in terms of raising the understanding of risk in our organizations? What are you seeing out there? Yeah, it's a good question. I think organizations are pretty good at thinking about risk these days. And corporate Australia has a short memory, I think, or organizational Australia has a short memory. So I'm sure in the three, four, five, ten years after the global financial crisis, there was a tremendous focus on that part of risk, on market risk, for instance, on global economy risk. But it's now 15 years 
And that focus, as things become good again, I'm sure it starts to wane. And it's the same with the business continuity plan. The focus on that will start to wane because the memories are are short and we'll only implement it and get serious about it when it pops up again and we have another crisis. And I think it's about resources as much as as anything. It's about devoting resources to the what-ifs and they'll stop doing that when it seems like, oh, we can just forget about a few of the what-ifs. I'm really generalizing here, but in our work, we see organizations... If the memory is long enough, they'll be thinking about risk. Yeah, yeah. Risk to bottom line, not not so much risk to people. It's, yeah. it's really risk. It's a corporate risk about, it's an enterprise risk, actually. It's about how would we survive as an organization if this or this happened. Yeah. I, th- I think they're pretty good at it. Yeah. 34 years in full-time service, transition. What was the catalyst for transition and, you know, moving on from Navy ship to the big ship, citizenship? Yeah, the catalyst. Well, a couple of things. I'd been a, a captain, so I'd been in rank at that level for nearly a decade. That's excessive, and I was loving it, and I did enjoy being a captain, and I enjoyed the jobs I had at that rank. But as is always going to be the case, unless you're at the very, very top of the pyramid, mm. you watch others around you who are slightly less experienced and more junior get promoted. So that was a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the organisation was sending me a message. Now the organisation didn't then say you need to leave. And I could have really stuck around, but I would have had less control of when and how I departed and less control of which jobs I then went to. So I just saw an opportunity to leave the military and the Navy from one of what I thought was the peak jobs, captain of the warfare training establishment with warfare schools across the country, uh, totally responsible for warfare training across the entire organization, whether it was a school in Perth or Cairns or Victoria or the many bases around Sydney. To live on my own terms, keep my reputation intact, in, in fact, enhance my reputation on the way I left and do it humbly, I guess, is a word. Just say it's been great. I said the words at a cocktail party, Navy owes me nothing. Been a willing volunteer for 34 years. I've been well paid. Could have left at any time. Yeah. Now is the time and what I'll be taking with me is a lifelong series of mateships and memories. Uh, they're not going to wane. And now's the time. So it was It was all those things. And I, I don't have too much ego. I'm sure I've got an average amount of ego. But when you look around and see others get promoted, it's not. I'm not bitter about it. It's like, okay, I'm getting the message. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, look, and I think that actually points to anybody, you know, whether you're in the military or, or any career path, it's like, you know, recognizing where you're at and actually making choices that contribute to your own well-being and actually – allow you to continue to serve. I think you talked about that as a family value effectively. Oh. And you know, it's sort of, you know, there are there's always more to do. And that doesn't necessarily need to be where you are today. It could be somewhere else. And when that sort of you get to that crossroads, it's actually it's actually liberating to exercise that choice and yes. go your own way. Yeah. Yeah, you gain a lot of agency when you take control. And it did feel like that for me. Yeah. And there was another factor. I was 52 and if I was going to have a go at something else and I did have in mind oh. the next thing, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, Yeah, it's probably better to do it at 52 than 58. And it's small business is going to take a while and then you get to a certain point. People were saying at least three years probably until you break even and get cracking. Oh. It was at least that. And so we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But yeah, yeah that was in my mind as well. Like go on your own terms with some control, with a strong reputation and young enough to do something else. Yeah. So what was that transition to corporate and what I understand to be your own consultancy business and what was that like? Yeah, that's a bit frightening, but it was a, it was a soft landing in that 
on leaving full-time service, I went into part-time service as a Navy guy, so I still had on my uniforms. I was still in the Directorate of Navy Culture, which was a, exactly where I wanted to be in my own practice. So I was learning to coach people, to coach leaders and junior people with a specific skill. Coaching is a skill, and I, so I was learning that and being trained by Navy as a part-time Navy person to coach others and then going and using that skill to coach people in my consultancy in my practice called Waterline Leadership. So I did that for a couple of years, not making any money in Waterline Leadership, but learning a lot and having registered it and it was there, investing in myself through Waterline Leadership and being grateful that Navy was investing in me as a Navy person and part-time service. So I did that for another maybe six years, the part-time service. And after about three years of, of realizing that coaching was probably the thing that was going to kick off waterline leadership, I encouraged my wife, Helen, to become a coach. At that time, she was in distribution and national sales jobs with luxury goods. And I could see she was enjoying from sort of looking over at what I was doing over the fence. She could see that was good and suited her. So waterline leadership sent her on a coaching course and she started coaching. And then she discovered Gallup Clifton Strengths, yeah. which became our main tool. And uh, before long, Woodline Leadership became a thing. And, and then there was a tipping point where I realized that part-time service in the Navy, while it was providing me with extraordinary pocket money tax-free for a day's service, and I was doing about 30 or 40 days in a financial year, that safety net was becoming something of a distraction, was a bit too safe, was a bit, a bit too distracting, and it was getting in my way. And Man. it was impacting on identity to some extent. I was still really? holding on to something. So in some very emotional conversations with some colleagues in an organization we had joined called the Thought Leaders Business School, run by the uh, incomparable Matt Church, Billy. I was encouraged to let go of that and get rid of the uniforms and no longer ask for service days and just go all in on Woodline leadership and just see what happened. Now, yeah. that was very powerful. That was very powerful. And I think it was a tipping point for Helen and I. It opened our eyes. It broke the umbilical cord to Navy, which by that stage was about 40 years. It was really impactful. So I did it and I went all in on waterline leadership and it's now a thriving practice of, of two. Well, doing leadership development programs and strengths programs for local government, state government, construction, defense industry. We really love it. Mm. What do you think the military service didn't, give you or teach you with regards to what you're doing now? Well, the obvious bit is anything to do with financial management. Oh. Now, as a navigator, warfare officer, ship captain, I just didn't ever get exposed to that. I did some procurement courses because I was one who had to sign off on some big procurement contracts, but that was about it. And there were elements of naval officers, as we know, who were very, very good at financial management. Those specializing in logistics are pretty good at it. And Many of them have gone off to do something which is in financial advice or financial services or super or something because they had that. I didn't get any of that. No regrets about that, but it would have been nice along the way. Now, was there any requirement for Navy to teach me any of that? No, but it would have been nice and it would have been nice to be prepared. I have no expectation that I'd get that from the military, but it's, that's a bit of a gap. And so you learn it along the way or, and this I'm talking about now outside in civilian ship, as you say. You outsource and you find very, very good people oh. and you pay them to look after you. And thankfully, Helen 
when I met and married Helen, she had some very, very good people in, in her corner. One was a financial advisor, one was an extraordinary accountant, and these people will just help us a lot. So they went from helping Helen to helping us, and now they help Waterline Leadership. Yeah. So looking back, you know, and advice, I guess, to today's emerging leader, somebody who wants to lean into leadership more today, what are your sort of top three things that you think you need to focus on if you're going to step up to leadership? Well, the number one, I think, is self-awareness. It's kind of the hidden be-all and end-all of really effective leaders and leadership. It's about being comfortable in your own skin, knowing what your own skin looks like. It's the thing that is very hard to work out and you have to ask. So it involves vulnerability and creating feedback because you need people to tell you how you're doing and you need people to tell you your blind spots and you need people to suggest to you the things you're a bit weak at. Now that means you have to be open-minded, humble and approachable because people aren't going to come and tell you those things unless you are humble and approachable. And you need to make it very safe for people to come and tell you those things. Or you need to ask through some diagnostics and 360s and strengths profiling, all these sorts of things. Yeah. Help you understand where your natural strengths are, the way you most naturally think and the way you most naturally feel and the way you most naturally do. You need to know that. Um, That's the Will Martin that had the little note, this is not a popularity contest. Uh -huh. I was learning at that time. I hadn't worked it out, but I was learning I where some of my gaps were and being popular, wanting to be popular was a gap. Yeah. So I think self-awareness is crucial. I think there's something around, and it's a hard thing to learn, but humility, I've said it a few times, humility and ego is important. And I love the work of Jim Collins, From Good to Great, Whatever. which is about finding that handful of corporate American leaders who had extraordinary humility and a fierce resolve the sort of people that you don't see on the front of Newsweek magazine ever because they prefer the shadows, but they lead their organization with humility and resolve and they outperform the market Bolland. times and times over as opposed to those that we hear about, like a Jack Welsh who we hear about because he's on the front page of all the magazines. These other organizations outperformed GE multiples by multiples because they had these humble communicators and it wasn't about them. Yeah. So I think there's something about humility, leaving your ego at the door, Boom. being very self-aware, seeking feedback. And if there's a third one, it's, it's about communication and it's the elements of communication. When we say to a leader, your organization tells us that they want you to communicate more with it, what the leader hears is the organization wants me to go and talk to it more. So they go and talk more. <laughs> but the organization actually wants them to come and listen more. Yes. And I worked as Chief of Staff to a Chief of the Navy who I heard tell a bunch of captains, lead with your ears. Love I love it. Yes. I love it. Lead with your ears. It says, go and sit down and communicate with your ears, not with your mouth. And Ooh. it's about hearing, listening, acting on what you're hearing, and then telling the audience what you've done with what they told you. Ooh. This is getting into some of the work from Oscar Trimboli, a great Australian thought leader on deep listening. Yes. He's saying, you know, you haven't closed the loop on listening until you've gone back and made sure that those who told you something know what you've done about it. Because it's at that point that they say, oh, he really listened or she really listened. Leaning. Until then they say, oh, they came, they heard us, but they didn't listen. Yes. Because there's nothing's happened about it. They haven't been told what happened as a consequence. So I think communication and particularly the listening element and acting on it and closing the loop is something that 
many leaders have oversight around it. They miss it. They miss the fact that it's about listening. Yeah. So maybe, maybe that's three things. There's some other things woven in there. I really appreciate those comments about communications because I, you know, I think we we can't do it enough. And it's in that style that you talked about where it's actually not just telling, it's actually about listening and actually providing that environment where people want to contribute that, that they're going to give you that feedback, that they're the experts in their world, they're part of your organization. They have that detailed knowledge that can actually help achieve those that mission perhaps in better ways than you're already doing. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And they know that you're not always going to act on what they tell you, yeah. but you're going to listen to it and consider it. Yeah. So you're not going to dismiss it. Yes. And this is what makes leaders approachable versus unapproachable. It's about the way ideas are received. It's about the way you respond where others come to tell you something. Now, if you bite their head off or if you shoot the messenger rather than shoot the message, then they'll never come back. Yeah. But if you say something like, I'm not too sure about that idea, but I know you've got some great ones, so keep coming with your great ideas, they know that you're not judging the person, yeah. you're judging the idea. Yeah. And this makes you approachable in that people keep coming to you. It's like the dog, you see it all the time, uh, that someone's asking their dog to come back because it's on the other side of the road and they're shouting, come here, come here, come here, and they're getting really angry. The dog eventually comes and the dog gets a slap and the dog goes, well, holy crap, I'm never coming back again because when I finally did come at your request, I got belted. Yes. So they just don't come next time. Yes. And if we do that to our people, they, they'll stop coming back. Yeah. Then communication stops, then the feedback stops, and then you're not growing yourself. Yeah. It's that multiple layers of how you create that trust environment, isn't it, at the end of the day? Yeah, trust. That is all about trust. Yeah. Approachability, yeah. trust, listening. Yeah. I think trust's fundamental there. Yeah. You've had a great leadership journey, and it's exciting to hear what you're doing with Borderline Leadership. What are the kind of things that you're focused on now? What are you seeing in the marketplace there that you've, that's got your attention in your consultancy? Yeah, well, in our, our small part of it, local government, state government, and, and the two or three other organizations, we're seeing a willingness for organizations to identify their future leaders and put them on some sort of program to give them the wherewithal to grow into leadership. And that's an interesting thing because what happens is, and we like coaching teams, we'd much prefer to be coaching a team because they come as an entity and we can do team development with them. We can do things like finding out what's getting in the way of them being amazing and breaking down the behaviors that are getting in the way, whether it's about trust or communications. And that's fantastic. And we'll always start with Clifton Strengths for that. And then they open up about their strengths to each other. And that's building bonds of trust and vulnerability that's making the team better. Oh. When you get a group of emerging leaders, you get a group that's not a team. Each of them have their own purpose and aim, where a team has a collective purpose and aim. So there's a lack of alignment with emerging leaders. But over time, and we work with them for 12 months if we can, over the period, they start to become a team and they start to become very generous with each other. They start to support each other in their own development. They start looking out for each other. And when we come back every month for half a day, as we do, they're giving each other feedback on what they've observed in each other's development. And they've all got a leadership growth area to work on and they're watching for each other. And we get a sense that as a cohort of individuals, they're starting to adhere to become a team that one day might become the senior team as it goes up through the levels. And as we then explain that to the senior team that appointed them, they're kind of amazed. They're like, oh, we didn't expect that. We just gave you four or five individuals who seem like they're going to be part of our future somehow. 
and they start to develop into an entity, which is a beautiful thing. And this entity then has trust and vulnerability and their individual purposes and aims start to come together. And you can see them starting to believe that they can become the leadership of the organization one day. Yeah. So I think there's a there's something of a trend around emerging leadership in organizations that we find fantastic and, and we love to be a part of. Yeah. I think it's so important to be able to create cohorts of leadership connection network across an organization. So often you go into organizations and find one of the number one barriers to achieving the mission is actually the fact that it's, you know, what's the word, silos of excellence. Yep. And nobody wants to work across the boundaries or you've got to go to the top of the organization before anybody can actually work <laughs> together. So that's great. Yeah. 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 And the silos thing is interesting. We've, we've done a lot of thinking and writing on silos. And we think silos get a bad rap. Sure. Because it's not the silos that are getting in the way. It's the siloism that can can get in the way. And in a paper we wrote, we said that in the Navy, for instance, you could argue that submarine service and aviation service and ship surface service are very independent silos and they have their own culture and language and safety culture and they have their own uniform, different colored overalls. They are indications of silos. But we should embrace them and treat them as being excellent and celebrate them for what they are. But we need to form bridges between them to make collective strength through the connections of the silos rather than trying to eradicate the silos. It would be crazy to say to aviators, you can't wear your green overalls anymore and you've got to change your language. You've got to change your view around hierarchy. You just can't. You've just got to make the organizations link up because there are barriers and blockers that get in the way. Yeah. Bridges are bridges are the thing that yeah. give an organisation strength through connection. Yeah. So as a leader, what are the some of the resources that have helped you along the way? You know, in your own leadership development. Resources. Well, people, feedback, readings, role models. I think I'm I'm an observer. In fact, I say to people, I'm a student of leadership. That's not because I go and educate myself. It's because I observe and have been observing good and bad leadership role models since pretty much the day I joined high school, I'd argue, just watching senior people. Yeah. So I think role models are, are a resource, a key resource for me. And it turns out that I've been stowing away the good and bad, the yin and yang, the bright and dark of leadership. And they've turned into leadership stories, most of these these little bits and pieces, particularly if there's a great contrast of styles. One might be suppressive and wants to look better by making others smaller and less powerful. And there are others that just stand tall because they're self-aware and comfortable in their own skin. So I I think for me, the key resource has been watching, listening, observing, stowing away, understanding why things happen the way they do understanding the agendas and the behaviors, studying people. Yeah. So if, if that's a resource, that that's it. Yeah, well, I guess it's a – for my – what I heard was there's a mindset there that I just actually need to be present and curious to, to understand why people are behaving that way at this particular moment. Yeah, curiosity is really good. Yeah. Open-minded, yeah. curious, ready to absorb and learn. And also resilient because we're going to take some knocks. I've worked for some people that have just battered me down. And it's resilience that gets you through and it's resilient friendships and mateships that get you through that. That times aren't always easy and, and leaders have their own styles and sometimes it feels like they're bashing you down. Yeah. Resilience is really important. Yeah. Well, it's been great to uh, catch up and, you know, 
take a trip down memory lane of Navy days and to hear stories. And again, thank you for sharing a lot of yourself and what you're doing now in your consultancy. We're going to finish up with some rapid fire questions. Um, so <laughs> I can get you to fill in the blank. That would be amazing. Okay. The first question is leadership is blank. It's about inspiration. It's about inspiring others to action. Cool. And second question, what is your go-to book on leadership? I reckon you've got a few. Yeah, I've got a few. For, for its title only, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, mm-hmm. Marshall Goldsmith has a mindset. I think that's phenomenal. Yes. But for leadership models and understanding, a book by Patrick Vermer, and he's a Belgian fella, called Around Leadership, oh. which is all about a 360 model that we've used in the past. It's an extraordinary read about the motives of people oh, yeah. that helps you understand leadership. So I think they're key. Yeah. I'd actually not heard of that one. I'd have to chase that up for myself, I think. <laughs> Next question. I wish I'd known blank earlier in my career. No, uh, I guess it's myself. Yeah. I, I wish I'd known myself better. I knew myself. Wish I'd known myself better. I kind of learned it along the way. Awesome. Next question. You get a call from a team member. Crisis just erupted in your organization. What are your first words to that person? It's around support. I think it's, what do you need from me? It, it's about, how can I help? What do you need? Oh. And that might be leadership, could be something else, could be resources. Yeah, but what do you need? Yeah. And the last question, the go-to quote on leadership that's had most influence on your leadership. I like lead with your ears, actually. Yeah. From a humble a humble naval officer. No. It says a lot, I Who think. Who was that person? That was Admiral Russ Crane. He had he'd come into the job as the chief of the Navy and he put a memo out to the entire Navy saying, in my first three months, I'm going to listen, learn, and then lead. And he backed that up with his chat to very senior people. And I think lead with your ears. Firstly, it's unique. Uh, It reminds me of Churchill who said, it takes courage to stand up and speak, but it takes more courage to sit down and listen. Yeah, wow. It's the same same kind of thing. Just listen listen with these ears. You're going to get so much. So I think as a succinct, powerful quote, Yeah, that's the one. I learned it very late in life, but I think it's crucial. Mm. Yeah. A great leader. So... Will, thank you so much again for your time today. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I look forward to catching up and having further conversations. Thanks, Martin. Been terrific. Okay. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com, where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.